Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. My guest today is Robin Russell Geyser. Robin grew up in a musical family. Her mother was a trained classical musician and a pianist. But in addition to Robin's classical training, Robin has the gifts both of being able to play by ear and to improvise. As a Christian, Robin also spent her life involved in church. Consequently, her musical repertory includes classical, sacred, folk, jazz, and rock and roll. In her early career, Robin was first a high school English and literature teacher and then a school guidance counselor. But she was always involved in music in some way, singing in church choirs, performing with a folk band. But her experience being with her father during the time of his dying and death especially as she ministered to him through her music, led Robin to learn about and to become a certified music practitioner. Certified music practitioners offer live acoustic bedside and chairside music to critically and chronically ill, elderly and dying patients in hospice, hospitals, rehabs, nursing, and private homes. For over 16 years, Robin worked in a hospice context, providing support, care, and healing through music. Robin has written about her experiences in her wonderful book, Musical Morphine, Transforming Pain One Note at a Time. This book was a finalist for the Best American Book Award in the Health and Alternative Medicine category. Robin is here to help us understand the nature of the work of a certified music practitioner and to share with us some of how it is done. You can learn more about Robin and her books from her website at robingeyser.com. I will include that in the link on my blog spot. So welcome, Robin. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you, David. I've been looking forward to this. I mean, and it's Finally fun to see each other in the real flesh after looking at Zoom for so many times. That's true. That's true. (laughs) Well, tell us what a music practitioner is uh, and how it differs from a music therapist. Good question. A certified music practitioner, which I go by like a CMP, is different from a music therapist, first of all, with education. Um, I was in my 60s almost uh, when I really wanted to do this. And so I did not want to go back to school and get a music therapy degree, which these days requires a doctorate, kind of like, you know, physical therapy and some of those other. Um, So um, it took me about two and a half years to do my... um, CMP. I did 80-some contact hours in modules on weekends. I did a clinical practicum in the Berkshire Medical Center and a six-month internship at Mountain Valley Hospice in upstate New York. So that was, you know, significant. I read, I had to read 20 books, do all kind of book reports, um, have a repertoire. I had to record to let them know that I really could do what I said I did in terms of, you know, musicality. So that's a certified music practitioner. 
And on the other side are music therapists. And although we do some of the same things, a music therapist, you know, has to have at least a bachelor's degree, and I believe now an advanced degree. Um, a music therapist um, can actually, um, like, prescribe. Now, a music therapist usually works under a doctor. So this person who comes in the room as a music therapist will know exactly what she or he is dealing with. Whereas we are on the spot people. We come to the rescue, shall we say, in certain cases. Um, a music therapist um, has to pass state exams, which are very rigorous. And their internship is a lot longer than my six-month internship. And I don't know what it is these days. But it's, a more, it's more of a medical um, thing. And, but, you know, music therapists are, are employed regularly by hospitals, you know, full-time jobs. Whereas certified musicians, um, certified music practitioners, we don't um, get that kind of recognition. We're working at it. But fortunately, I was able to have part-time employment all the time. But I also did a lot of volunteering. Mm, okay. Um, well, then, what do you think um, led you into this? David, I think I've been leading toward this all my life. Um, but I think the final thing that did it, my father was dying. And he, you know, my family, very musical. And on a whim, I took my guitar to the hospital, and I started singing and playing for him. And he was very, very ill, in a lot of pain. And what transformed in that half hour or more, I have no idea of time, was something. His brow, his face relaxed. His clenched hands relaxed on the bed rails. And he began breathing deeply. And the next thing you know, he went into a fabulous, badly needed, deep sleep. And I thought, well, you know, I'm his daughter, and he taught me a lot of songs that I just sang him, so maybe it's only that. But something told me, wait a minute, there's a lot more going on here. And so I had been looking for a program like this for a long time, the CMP program. And honestly, you know, he passed away not long after that. And, you know, I was kind of lost. And I prayed, put my hands out and said, okay, God, if you got something for me, I'm ready. And wouldn't you know, about a year and a half later, this program literally dropped in my lap. And I was worried that I wouldn't get accepted because I don't have a music degree. You know, I have an English degree teaching credentials and a psychology degree and counseling credentials. Well, I was accepted and given a partial scholarship because of my experience. And uh, the kind of music I do and my experience are perfect for this kind of work. Well, now most of your work has been in hospice context. Are, are certified music practitioners... Uh, limited to that or is that is that kind of the primary focus or do they have other contexts in which they oh practice? gosh i have worked in so many different kinds of contexts i would say 
maybe you're getting the impression of hospice by reading my book, but right. I love working in hospice. But um, I have worked in um, hospitals was my first job. Huge rehab centers where I do all kinds of different work because there are so many different things going on in rehabs. Um, nursing homes. I've worked with autistic children. Um, I have done one-on-one in homes with people with, you know, different cancers. Um, uh, gosh, I've, I've worked everywhere. Mm. You name it, I've done it. Um, well, in your book, uh, you talk about using different types of music according to different situations. So, yeah. yeah, describe some of those, and, and we're going to get to hear some of, the, some of the pieces of music for that, but kind of introduce that to us a little bit. Describe some of the different contexts and then what kind of music goes in those situations. Well, the context, um, that was one of the wonderful things of taking the classes because everything we did in those classes uh, through, it was musical, uh, music for healing and transition program, MHTP, they're on the website, and they are all over the country and now have some presence in England and um, um, Canada. But what we learned there was all research-based. And so, you know, what we were doing, we weren't pulling out of our hat. So um, there are five categories that we were working with. And, of course, things can blend in. So let's say we have a patient that is in danger of dying or, um, and the hospital staff is trying to avoid it. Um, like a sudden onset of something like a heart attack or severe as trauma, a stroke surgery, some problem. So the guideline for that music is to do a heartbeat music of 50 to 70 beats per minute, which is, you know, um, a standard heartbeat, because oftentimes these people in distress, their heartbeats way through the ceiling. So music that would slow, heartbeat rhythm, um, and seamless transition from, if you're playing familiar music, seamless transition from one piece to the next. And I'm going to suggest here, which is what I saw, that you want something in a 4-4 four, four beat because that really is the rhythm of the body. One, two, three, four. It's what we heard in the womb. It's how we walk. And it is, I call it, it's home. Mm-hmm. And so the 4-4 four, four beat, pieces without any obvious change. So that would be that patient condition. Okay. Now, for non-acute, um, critically ill, you know, like, but stable, maybe in a rehab or something like broken bones, recovering from surgery but not in the ICU, um, early onset MS or ALS, uh, dialysis and cancer. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of us in those places. Uh, diverse styles of music. So, you know, you can pull anything out of your hat on that one. Uh, music with any tempo because their, um, their heartbeat is, is, is steady. Um, a very a varying range of pitch and tempo. And when I talk about pitch or I talk about high versus low, a high pitch 
or a high note or, or a high note or a very, let's say, electric guitar, which we are acoustic musicians all the way, or even my steel string on my guitar is very stimulating neurologically. We kind of don't want that. We have that in other places. So I would use um, an instrument with a low timbre, it's called, uh, to do that. But I could do... um, I could do all kinds of different styles of music. I could do blues. I could do um, hymns, but we'll get into that. And I could, you know, just all over the place, folk music. So that would be diverse styles of music. Um, Then cognitively impaired. So we've got the whole range of dementia. And I bet the listeners today are going to say, oh, yes, we have either seen that or employed it. So let's say we've got somebody who is deeply into dementia in one of the ways, possibly um, Alzheimer's. So we want to do familiar music because, honestly, we've all seen it and, and participated in it. A patient completely lost. And I start singing something like, Take me out to the ball game. And boy, those heads come up. And by the time four, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out. You've got them right there, if you're going to get them. (laughs) And they're present. There they are, with familiar music to their era. Mm -hmm. And um, very comforting oftentimes. Um, I remember many of my patients, of course, elderly. Let me call you, sweetheart. I'm in love. Oh, there we go. Yeah. And that's in 3-4 time, and that's okay, because it has a strong beat. But again, I have found with my dementia patients, again, 4-4 four, four beat, 1-2-3-4, because they need as much grounding as possible. Same with autistic children. So, in pain, high anxiety, oh my gosh, hurting, nervous, agitated, anxiety, you know, before surgery. Music with a consistent, um, countable beat, or I found with high pain, you don't want that because it's throbbing right along with the pain. What I move to is rubato or just a floating something or other, and oftentimes um, improvisational and seamless and just on and on, and you float these folks above their anxiety and their pain with something maybe familiar but improvised but seamless mm. and uh, usually uh, usually slow to pull it down because these f- folks might have high you know high blood pressure and then then we have the actively dying and of course you're going to see that the most in the hospices and these folks we call it actively dying which almost sounds like an oxymoron but These folks are in their last hours of life. We know their heart is not beating regularly. And they are trying to move from this world to the next. And so, music very unstructured, no familiar melody, no regular beat, and no familiar lyrics. And I have, in some cases played 
one note over and over. And, you know, here are the families sitting around thinking, what the heck is this? But they kind of get it. And so what we don't want the heartbeat to do is match a rhythm because it's trying to let go. We don't want the brain or the mind to come back to this earth. We want them to be able to go on to where they're going. So no discernible beat, no discernible, you know, I mean, it's, and I want to tell you the first time I did that with an actively dying patient, it was really hard and strange because what we're told is to match the heartbeat. And if you've ever been with a dying person, you will know that that heartbeat is so irregular. And there will be this long exhale or a long inhale. And you think, okay, grandma's gone. And then, and there it is again. So it, it's, it's really something. And the number of times I've done it, I feel so close to and part of that sacred journey because I'm right there with all of those things that are going on with the person who's transitioning. So, lots of improvisation, and I'm really good at that. I've had the privilege of having seven people die with me in the music in a, it is such a sacred and holy journey together. Well, we're going to listen to some examples of, of these different things that you've done. Uh, and as we do, you had mentioned the word entrainment. So tell us about what that is, how that relates to these different examples. The entrainment principle is uh, something that's really important to the work that, that we all do. The entrainment principle um, says that the heart and the respiration will entrain or match the rhythm of music that a person hears. And so you can see how, or I will demonstrate how it can work. Um, let's just start out with good old Helen. Helen, in my first job at Nathan Latower Rehab up in upstate New York, um, I asked the... Uh, Charged nurse, were there any special needs today? And she looked at me, kind of gave me a funny look and said, uh, yeah, Helen, uh, down on the second floor. She said, you'll probably hear her by the time you get close. Well, I got closer and I heard this woman cussing her head off. What, somebody get in here? You know, somebody get the hell in here? Pardon my friend. I mean, she was just going on and on. And so I entered the room, and she kind of didn't even see me. And so I knew, I could tell she had COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder. And all that carrying on, her beats per minute were just flying. And she could hardly breathe. She was heaving for air, and I thought, aha. So what I did is match my rhythm to her beat to her breathing, <laughs> you know. And then over a period of time, I think it felt like an hour, but it was probably about seven or so minutes. I brought my beat down slowly, and that old entrainment pick, you know, just went right in. So let me demonstrate. 
So Helen's carrying on, and here we go. Rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. Rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. Rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. Oh, rock my soul so high. You can't get over it so low. You can't get under it so wide. And she's just breathing, starting to breathe with me. So wide. You can't get over it. Oh, rock of my soul. So she's breathing, and I call it pinking up, pinking up. She's now got color in her cheeks because she's been getting oxygen. And she says, who the hell are you? And I stand there like, uh, uh, I'm, I'm Robin, the, the house musician here. Um, she said, well, nobody will come here and take my sweater off. I'm hot. And uh, one of the things we are not supposed to do is touch patients. And David, you'll probably ask me more questions about what we're not supposed to do, which I did. So I did kind of help her out of her sweater. And I said, Helen? Do you want more music? She looks up. She said, uh, yeah. I said, do you want to choose what music you want, or do you want dealer's choice? She looked up, dealer's choice. So I went on to Frankie and Johnny. She loved it, and those red fingernails that had been done, this is a woman in her 80s, were tap, tap, tapping away to my rhythm. And we became fast friends until she died about two years later. So, you know, there's a little bit about Helen, one of my favorites, and a little bit about the entrainment principle and how it worked. And she was breathing. And so there it was. You talk about, uh, you mention especially those that are in the transition process. Yeah. Uh, that you don't use a beat and you don't yeah so how, how does how does that work well the good old entrainment principle works kind of like in the reverse when we've got somebody who's actively dying or someone who is in acute pain because we don't want the body to match the beat in the case of person in, a person in pain you know if if they are throbbing with pain it's usually a very rhythmic kind of throbbing, and you don't want to encourage that. You want to discourage it. So you would play something without a beat, and usually something, um, you know, it could be familiar, but um, seamless. So going from one song to the other without stopping. Um, then the, or, or well, if, if I'm playing without a beat, so I would improvise something maybe familiar and enough to not have it have a beat. And so oftentimes you don't even recognize it. With an actively dying person, you know, we don't want to bring the heartbeat back. We don't want to tax that poor little heart that's trying to let go. So again, reverse entrainment 
we don't want it to match the beat of the music. So we play, you know, or sing or hum or, I mean, I've, I chanted my own mother out with the entrainment, you know, with, uh, with, with improvisation. And um, so that they can let go. So one of my favorite instruments for doing this is the Native American flute. And one of the important things, too, I pitch it in a low tone because the low tones, unlike the high tones that stimulate, the low tones keep you calmer. You, you can, you, you've probably had that in your own life. So let me um, demonstrate on this Native American flute that I have uh, what I would do, let's say I have somebody either in terrible pain or anxiety or who is actively dying. And David, you're looking at a flute that has done this hundreds of times with situations just like this. So take, okay. take yeah. a listen. Is there a um, importance to closure in the sense that you came back down to a ending, and does that does that help so that you're not kind of leaving it hanging, but that you you resolve it? Actually, I have done it all that way. Um, it works with an improv, you know, with a pentatonic flute, which is like the black keys on the piano. I'll give you an example where I don't resolve down to a lower note, and I think it doesn't make a difference. Okay. Here we go. Why do you think that that is, that it doesn't matter? Because I'm playing really no recognizable melody. And this particular tuning, there is no beginning or end in a pentatonic tuning. Right. And so that's why it's so lovely to have this flute, because I can go anywhere with it. Now, I just gave you just a minute sampling. This could go on and on and on. Now, I have other Native American flutes that I use, too, that I can switch to because the good old American flute can get what you call wet flute, and uh, she won't play anymore. Yeah. So I usually, in, in a situation like that, I have a couple of flutes with me so I can move right to them. 
Well, you talk about um, that you you impress upon those in the room, uh, whether it's the patient or the family, that you're not there to do a performance. Explain that. Yes. And as a performer of music all my life, you know, all kinds of bands and choirs and solos and all kinds of stuff, doing programs, moving from performance to service is a big transition for many of us, you know, who were taking the program. And so sometimes, especially when you're playing familiar music for people, you feel like it is a performance because they're participating with you so many times. But for the most case, what I need to do is drop my ego at the door, go in with a prayer, and move into a place where I am doing the Lord's work and not performing. It's a, it's a, it's a hard one. It was a hard one for me. Um, but just connecting, you know, connecting with the patient, connecting with what's going on. And, you know, for the most part, I don't even know what's going on. Unlike a music therapist who has got a, you know, a plan in front of him or her that says the patient will, the patient will, the patient will, the patient will. Well, not me. I go to the head nurse or the recreation director and I say, are there special needs today? And they say, well, you know, like they said, Helen and 200 and something or you know, yeah, room 112 could use you, or room, you know, and you think, okay, well, you just go in and you rely on your God-given intuition, and I'm an empath, which is very helpful, and in you go and do what you do. Well, you talked about um, using clues uh, as you enter the room, uh, noticing things, uh, in the room, but also noticing what's happening with the patient uh, as you're performing that kind of guides what you do. Explain some of that. Yeah, that's such a great question, David. Yeah, and so here I am. I don't want to say clueless. I'm never clueless. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I were. But I'll go in the room, and oftentimes, you know, I will look around, okay? You can tell possibly how long a patient has been there. And that plays into it by how many cards or what's around the room. I look for religious icons, you know, across with or without a crucifix, which tells me a Protestant or a Catholic. I look for any other religious icons. I look for a Bible on the side of the table, which may be a well-used Bible. That tells me something with lots of markers in it. Um, I... Um, of course, I'm looking at age. I'm looking at any other signals. And then when I, when I begin singing or playing, I watch for all kinds of physical or, I guess, emotional reactions. And um, let's say I've got a non-responsive patient in the classical sense. So they, they can't talk to me. I can't ask them sometimes what kind of music they would like. In other cases, I sometimes will do that. But if they're, you know, I'll see a furrowed brow. I'll see clenched, you know, hands. I'll see movement of feet, different kinds of breathing, eyes open, eyes shut, 
mouth maybe mouthing words, uh, a frown. And so I watch while I'm doing the music to see if the music is working. And if I determine it isn't, I switch gears real fast. And that's the joy of improvisation. One of the other things that I found fascinating was that sometimes in order to connect the music with the patient, uh, you had to do it physically in the sense of, of putting your hand on them in some way so that the vibration would come through or that you would put the, the instrument, usually a, like the flute or something, up against them in their jaw or something. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about why that is. Well, um, music is pure vibration. And so um, sometimes... Patients who are particularly hard of hearing or patients who are not responding as well as you would hope they would by not relaxing. Um, Doing what you just said, David, really helps out. Now, again, I'm violating the rules. I'm not supposed to touch a patient. Well, sometimes... Here's somebody who's struggling, and they reach out, and they want to hold your hand. Well, I'm not going to say no to that. But let me demonstrate a little something. Um, I had a patient who was pretty hard of hearing, and um, I put the harmonica up to her ear, right on the cheekbone, where the bones. Now, the bones are a part of the body that really, really receive that vibration. In fact, when you listen to music, you feel the beat in your bones, you know, when there's a heavy bass beat or something. So um, little old Evelyn was about, oh, I think she was about 95. And she couldn't really see very well either. And she'd been in the, in the uh, care facility for like 12 years, had no family. And so nobody much went in and nobody could do anything. And They said, well, you could go in. And I thought, why do they want me to do something with someone who's deaf and blind? And I thought, well, I'm not going to give up. So I touched her so she wasn't afraid uh, because she couldn't really see me. and I didn't want to startle her. And I got down really close to her, her ear. And her little wispy hair was tickling my nose. And I said, Evelyn, it's Robin and I had my hand on her. I'd like to play some music for you. Is that okay? Yes. And I thought, oh, she could hear that. So I was right up next to her. So I got my harmonica out and played it right in her ear, and I went from one folk song to the other. And she was a-tapping those feet under those covers and those little hands, and she was smiling, smiling, smiling. And so the music had reached her. Um, She really didn't have dementia. And even if she did, I was playing all familiar music from her her past. And it turned out she knew my grandmother. Oh, my. So that was a special thing. I don't know if you want to hear any harmonica or not, but there's other ways I use that harmonica, too. And it was I'd walk into a room and somebody would look at me like, uh... Really, especially men. Especially men? Uh Uh-huh. 
here comes somebody, you know, with a guitar and stuff. And they'd, they'd be very suspicious. So I'd pull out my harmonica and hold it up in the air. Everybody had a story about a harmonica. <laughs> Everybody knows a story. My uncle used to play one of them. So I'd start out with a harmonica. And I was, then I was accepted. Huh. It, was, it was really cool. And, of course, I was telling you, David, earlier, I always wore slacks with pockets because I carried my harmonica in there. And my little note thing where I would write down room 102 or 112, and I had throat lozenges because if I'm going to play seamless music and breathe, I tucked one of those into the pocket of my cheeks so I never coughed mm. and startled anybody. Oh, okay. So, yeah, if you want to show us that. Oh, with a little harmonica. <laughs> Pretend this is up against your ear, but you have to be deaf because it's it's... You know, the timbre of the harmonica is very bright and reedy, mm-hmm. so it's very stimulating. Right. So it would be very rare that I would play this for someone who's actively dying. No, no, no. A, right. a cut, once in a while I did. Well, here's a little harmonica. Let's say I walked into the room. In fact, I walked into the room in one rehab, and there were four men in there. And boy, did they give me the hairy eye. Like, what are you doing in here? And I car- I pulled out this harmonica, and we were friends forever. So here we go. I'll play one of my songs that I played for him. So that got him smiling. And then I'd hear the stories, and then they'd say, can you play this? Can you play that? Can you play this? Can you play that? And hopefully I could. (laughs) (laughs) If not, I'd figure something out. Well, in talking about um, seeing religious symbols in the room, uh, you said that one of the things that you were taught was that you shouldn't play any kind of religious music Uh, And that you kind of differed from that. So tell us about your own observations and own experience relating to that. Yeah, that that was uh, something we endlessly discussed in classes because so many of the elderly population folks that we were dealing with, you know, religious music was their pop music. I mean, that's what they knew. And that's what was comforting to them. So I, I, I... tried to play by the rules, and I tiptoed lightly, shall we say. And so I looked for religious icons. If people were conscious and could talk, I would say, oh, are you a person who is fond of uh, hymns? And about 90% of the time, oh, yeah. Could you play this? Could we sing this? Could we sing that? Other times, if the family was there, I could ask. And other times, I just kind of tried my way in with one of two songs or both, which I considered the hit parade of religious music 
which in my estimation had and still has one foot in popular and one foot in sacred. And those two songs are, and you might guess, Amazing Grace and, believe it or not, I Come to the Garden Alone or In the Garden. Hmm. Because that song was so popular. And I have seen every religious faith or non-faith know that song. And, of course, everybody knows Amazing Grace. So I would usually try Amazing Grace and watch the reaction. And if it was a scowl or even don't do that, I knew don't go there. Because some people have aversions to some of those hymns. They carry um, emotional memory. And you got to be careful. You don't want to do harm. Right. But most everybody loved and boy, I'll tell you, in the garden, whew, that tears flowing on everybody's side, including mine. Because <laughs> yeah. I remember my own grandmother singing that to me. Right. And me me learning it. And I, you know, I know all the verses to all these hymns and could, uh, I was raised in the church. So I had a wonderful time being able to use those types of music with so many people. And often when it was seasonal, course we would sing the Christmas or we would sing you know the Easter songs or we you know so it was it was fun well in the book you also talk about the fact that you are yourself a person of faith that you're a Christian Uh, so how does all this um, integrate with your own faith my faith is very deep and it's wandered around quite a bit trying to look for where God is and my life and around me. Um, I've always wanted to, I've always been a person who was a giver. And um, I can tune into people very easily. So in all of my music, starting from when I was very young, I connected with my audience, shall we say, or, and I felt like there was something other than just me going on. And I attribute that to be God, Holy Spirit, coming through me. Now, with this music in particular, I need all the help I can get to do it. I don't want to construe that it's easy peasy, because it is not. It is hard hard work. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of concentration. So before I go in a room to work with a patient, I pray. And I, got, I just say part of the prayer of St. Francis, God, make me an instrument of your peace. Drop my ego at the door and go in. And when things are going well, I'm grateful and say thank you. When things are kind of tough, I say help. <laughs> Not out loud. Help me, you know. And then when I uh, leave the room, I pray over the patient. And, you know, whether the patient knows it or not, you don't have to be loud to pray. You don't even have to say it. But I have uh, blessed many a patient with the uh, go now in peace, go now in peace. May the God of love surround you. Everywhere, everywhere. 
Has implications because I don't know where the patient will go. But I have done that over the beds of patients. In fact, I'm tearing up thinking about it. And it just seems to be a blessing for both of us. And then I thank God and I leave the room. So it's, I would like to say that God has been part of everything I've done in my life to some degree, and this is no exception, and it may be the most prominent example of incorporating God into my work. Well, if this work has been so impactful, why isn't there more of it in institutions? David, you asked the bingo question. <laughs> I always love it when my guests say things like that. <laughs> well, I've given a lot of presentations, as you can imagine. A lot of people are very interested in this, and, you know, book clubs and all of that. And I would say that is the number one question that I'm asked. You know, why don't we have this in hospitals? Why don't we have this? At, and they'll name places. Well, it costs money. And Although I've done a lot of volunteering, let me say that, because I just can't not do it. The need is so great. It costs money. Also, we don't make any money for the hospital, shall we say. Let's say I've got good old Helen or, you know, with her hard breathing or a heart event or something, and I go in and I do an entrainment and pull a heartbeat down, and it stays down for three or four hours, well, no $50 or more pill was administered or shot was given to do that. And little old certified music practitioner did it in about 10 to 12 minutes. So that's that. Um, in other cases, um, People don't know about it. And I think the best advertisement is for somebody like me to be there and see in the background a doctor or nurses kind of watching what's going on and being amazed at what happens when the proper music is given under the right circumstances. Well, you have given us some wonderful insight I want to thank you uh, for the work that you have done. Uh, it has been important in, to the lives of so many people. I want to thank you for the book uh, that helps us better understand uh, what this ministry is, what this uh, way of helping to heal uh, people is. Uh it's a hard book to read because, as you said, the, the hospice experience is a hard experience, and your writing is so compelling that I had to recover after each chapter before I read the next uh, because you, you helped bring us into the experience that then helped convey how the music contributed. And so it's a wonderful book. I thank you for the book. 
And I thank you for being my guest today. Thank you, David. I have to say, you are not the first person to say they had a box of Kleenex and could read one chapter at a time, because I really do take you with me. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.